Now, take your Bible and open to uh, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 11 and read down through verse 18. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside of the tomb weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one on the head and or one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And she, when she said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came uh, uh, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for an opportunity <clears throat> again to study your word. We just praise you for its uh, clarity and for the fact that you want us to know the truth about the historical person of Jesus Christ, and you've laid it out for us uh, so very clearly for us to uh, uh, hear, to understand, and to rejoice in. So guide us in our hour of worship, honor yourself, lift up Christ, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't do this very often, but right at the beginning, I have to stop and give you an explanation for where, uh, I, where we're not going to go, where you think we're going to go, but we're not going to go. Um, you know, I sit down this week. For me, Bible study is always a great adventure. I, I always start in one direction, and I study, and I learn things, and things grab my attention. And there's questions that, I, that need to be asked and answered. And, and, and so all along the way, I, I really think it's, uh, I, I think it's a great adventure. Maybe you find that, too, when you're studying, you know. It, it's just so full uh, of information. And my honest uh, desire this week was, we were going to work our way through part of this text. And I couldn't say, honestly, we're going to get through all of it because you know me better than that. But we're going to at least work our way part way through uh, the text. But as I got all the things and went all the rabbit trails and gathered all the information, I came to the end going, man, I can't go any further because we're out of time. And so, Lord willing, we'll get to this text next week. Okay? I thought about changing the title. I thought about putting another scripture, but, but we're not going to do that. Because we are going here, and this is important. The, the, the physical appearance of of Jesus to Mary, I think, really sets the stage for what I'm going to give you this morning. So again, we're still studying on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reality, happened in history. Uh, the re the uh, re resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead really is divine confirmation that sin's penalty has been paid in full for those who believe on him. Uh, full atonement has been made. There's nothing else that needs to be done. That's such an encouragement. Listen, there's nothing else that needs to be done. Jesus Christ has done it all. God's holiness and God's justice, again, have been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said it this way concerning Jesus, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our what? Our justification. Right? He was raised. Justification, that means not guilty, positively righteous, uh, but before the bar of God, the judgment bar of God. Uh, so because of Jesus Christ, nothing else needs to be done. Eternal life is given freely to those who repent and believe upon the person of Christ. So it's impossible to receive eternal life unless you actually believe in the literal historical person of Jesus Christ, but unless you actually believe in the literal, literal historical physical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. I, I've told you this repeatedly. No man except this one man of history ever defeated death. And those who reject the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead find themselves outside the sphere of salvation. Paul wrote it like this in Romans 10.9. He says, salvation comes only if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be saved. And it's this failure to believe in the historical person of Jesus Christ and this failure to believe in the resurrection of uh, Jesus, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ from the dead that places men outside the realm of salvation. 
And as I told you repeatedly through the study in John, a failure to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really the product of a rebellious heart. It's a determination to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it's also active evidence of the enemy of man's soul, which is Satan himself, blinding uh, the, the truth to the minds of those who refuse to believe Christ. They, they can't see, they won't see, and they can't see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. They will not receive the gospel of grace that, again, God has provided in order that men would escape sin's penalty, which is eternal death, eternal condemnation. And as I said to you last time, and I said it several times, and I said it several times intentionally, that's why I'm saying it again, because I want you to think about what I've said, that only a fool or the devil himself would want to deny or explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only a fool or the devil himself would want to deny or explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because in doing so, what you are doing is you're guaranteeing your eternal doom, your eternal condemnation. Because the only hope that men have of salvation, the only hope that men have of forgiveness of sin is if Jesus Christ literally, physically, bodily defeated death and rose from the grave. Apart from that, etern- apart from that literal reality, that historical reality, the entire race of mankind is still eternally damned, eternally doomed, still, still under the penalty of sin, which is death, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Without the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your belief in that, without that reality, the entire race is headed towards a literal physical place of conscious eternal torment with no hope of ever escaping a place called hell. Wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Now, in our study so far, we've seen indisputable the proof that Jesus really was dead. Right? Jesus has died. The evidence is overwhelming. He's died. He's buried. He's been in the grave. And then three days later, when several women go to the tomb to anoint the dead body, they find the tomb empty because Jesus has defeated death. God sent an angel to remove the stone that covered the entrance over the tomb, not to let Jesus out, but to let the world in. So the entire world could see that Jesus defeated death. The angel declared to the women who came to the tomb looking for the dead body, they would not find one here. Again, the angel said, he's not here. He has risen from the dead, just like he said. The angel of the Lord, again, confirming the fact that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is alive. Now, again, that's tremendously important truth, uh, tremendously encouraging truth, tremendously important truth. For a man's eternal future, that is obvious, but also tremendously important truth, vital for every man's present, as we exist in the present. Because how could your life in the present hold any uh, true meaning or importance if in the future you're headed towards eternal condemnation? eternal torment apart from the person of Jesus Christ. I've said it a hundred times through the series, Jesus Christ is that important. Who you think Jesus Christ is is going to determine everything about your life now and everything about your life in eternity to come. You go, well, I'm not so sure. I believe about eternity to come. You believe whatever you want. I'm encouraging you and begging you to believe the truth that's written in the Bible, the Word of God, that, that Jesus has come to rescue men from the penalty of sin, which is death, and death is evident all around us, which is another evidence of the fact that all mankind is infected with this thing called sin. And you can't drive through a city, drive out in the country anywhere uh, without seeing uh, uh, cemeteries everywhere. Death is present all around us. It's confirmation that all mankind is under judgment. All mankind is infected with sin. And Jesus Christ is the only answer to remove the penalty from that sin. And again, it's the person of Jesus Christ who has come. It's the person of Jesus Christ whom God the Father has sent into this world out of his tremendous love for the world so that those who would repent and believe in him might be saved, right? That they would not perish, but they'd have eternal life, John 3, 16. The Bible says, John 3, 17, that God didn't send Christ into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. God desires that men would be saved. But he also warns that if you deny the person of Jesus Christ, his literal historical resurrection from the dead, John 3, 18 says you are in the category of those who have already been judged because you failed to believe. John 3.36 says, those who don't obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon them. All these warning passages are to make you not go that direction, but to stop and consider your eternal destiny. John 8.28, Jesus warned that unless men believed that he was God come in the flesh, men would die in their sins. So again, getting the person of Jesus Christ is vitally important for your life now and vitally important for eternity to come. But the reality is men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and men continue to reject not only the person of Jesus Christ, but men continue to reject and mock uh, the literal historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
But the truth is, it's much easier to believe, or the reality is, it's much easier to believe in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than it is to come up with ways to try to explain away the resurrection. The reality is it's much easier to believe in the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than it is to come up with ways to try to explain away the resurrection. But nevertheless, through the years, many foolish people have put forth many uh, different foolish ideas in an attempt to do that very thing, to try to explain away the resurrection. And only a fool or the devil himself would try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But many have done that, done that very thing. So let me just give you a few of the theories. And these are, I don't know, I think these are the most of the major ones. There's probably some other ones out there. But th these are the major ones that have been advanced throughout the years to show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fraud. Now, who wants to do that? Who would want to show that Jesus Christ's resurrection is a fraud? My answer, only a fool or the devil himself, right? So these are foolish ideas. They come from the demon, or from, the, from the domain of darkness. They're, they're not true. But here we go, a number of them. Number one, the unknown tomb theory. The unknown tomb theory. It's a theory that just simply says that none of the disciples knew the location of where Jesus was laid. And again, this theory promotes the idea that the body of Jesus had been thrown in a common pit, as I told you, that was, was a part of um, the time and the end of the city after execution for criminals. He was thrown in that pit, uh, removed from the cross, thrown in that pit in the end of the city, and his body was never buried. Now, obviously, that's a problem with that theory as it completely regards the straightforward historical narrative surrounding Christ's burial and Christ's post-resurrection uh, scene, the post-resurrection scene of Christ. The Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea took the body of uh, Jesus down from the cross along with a man named uh, Nicodemus, and they uh, prepared his body, and they buried him in the tomb that had originally been hewn out for Joseph of Arimathea. The body, again, was prepared according to the Jewish burial customs. A group of women sat across from the tomb and watched the whole process unfold, this burial of Christ, Mark 15, 47. They sealed the tomb. Remember, they put the body in there. They sealed the tomb. They put a large stone over the entrance of the tomb. And under the request of the Jewish religious leaders, Rome sent a guard uh, somewhere between four to 16 men uh, to guard the tomb and then placed a seal over the entrance of the tomb to authenticate the fact that Jesus was buried there and the tomb was under the protection of the Roman government. So an obvious problem with this theory, the unknown tomb theory, is if the disciples didn't know which tomb where Jesus was buried, uh, Joseph of Arimathea certainly did, and so did the women, and so did the Roman guard, and so did the Jewish religious leaders, because again, they're the ones responsible to station a guard there at that tomb. So again, this, this theory doesn't hold up. If no one knew where the Jesus was buried, and the fact that, uh, and in fact, he wasn't buried, but just thrown into the pit, all the religious leaders of Israel have to do is physically produce the what? Produce the body. Right? Send somebody to the, t to the pit at the end of town, produce the body, retrieve the body, bring it forward, and any discussion of a resurrection is over. But they didn't. Why? Because they don't have the body. Why? Because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. Right? Are you guys okay? You're with me this morning? He's alive. There, there's no body to get. He's alive. He's in his body. Right? Unknown tomb theory. Number two, the wrong tomb theory. Wrong tomb theory. It's similar to the first theory. It says when the women returned Sunday morning to anoint the corpse, they went to the wrong tomb. Uh, again, this theory doesn't hold up either, right? Uh, the women were watching Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus bury the body and seal it in the tomb. Uh, they came uh, a couple days later, right, to, to anoint the body of Christ, and, and they met in an open tomb. They heard the testimony of the angel that said Christ wasn't there, that he's been risen from the dead, and the angel invites him to come look at the place where he lay. So again, those who hold this theory completely reject the historical evidence, and they completely throw away the evidence again put forth by the angel. Now, since Christ was buried in a private tomb, not a public cemetery, and only had been in the, in the, in the, in the ground about 72 hours since he'd been laid in that tomb, it's hard to believe that the women uh, would forget so quickly the place where they had seen their dear Savior laid. So again, this theory doesn't hold up. In fact, if you wanted to extrapolate this uh, wrong tomb theory out a little bit, uh, uh, you, then you'd have to say that not only did the women go to the wrong tomb, not only did Peter and John both run, run to the wrong tomb, not only did the Jews go to the wrong tomb, uh, the Roman guard went to the wrong tomb, Joseph of Arimathea went to the wrong tomb, and, he, uh, uh, and the angel appeared at the wrong tomb, right? The entire world went to the wrong tomb. The theory is ridiculous. Number three, some people say, well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is legend. It's just a legend, so the legendary theory. 
Some people that uh, say, well, you know, this whole thing came years and years after the, the time of Christ. Only problem with that is, again, here you're going to see a common theme. It's not true. It's not true. The account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not hundreds of years uh, after the time of Christ. Uh, for legends to arrive, you've got to have a, a considerable amount of time. You've got to have stories being told and retold and generations, perhaps centuries for legends to develop. Uh, when Jesus died, it was only a few days after the resurrection, actually 50, uh, which is a relatively short amount of time, 50 days after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, Peter stands up and publicly proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what he said in that sermon, which we'll look at here in a moment, but he didn't say, look, like the start of Star Wars in a land far, far away, in a galaxy far, far away, in a long, long time ago, you know, he doesn't introduce it like that. It's not a fairy tale because it's history. Why do you believe anything that you believe in history? Because somebody has told you. You've read an account of it. Somebody's given an eyewitness account of it, and the evidence is overwhelming, right? Let me, can I get a show of hands? Who in the room has met Abraham Lincoln? Okay, now... You should put your hand down in the back row. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Nobody raised their hand. Right? Nobody has met Abraham Lincoln. I've seen him on a five-dollar bill. I've seen some pictures of him. But historical eyewitness testimony, some photographs, etc., and so forth, attest to the reality, the historical reality of the person of Abraham Lincoln, just like historical evidence attests to the person, the death, burial, and resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not fairy tale. It's history. In fact, Christ more than likely died at about 33 A.D. In 56 A.D., uh, just 23 years later, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he is attesting to the fact that there were, listen, not just one eyewitness, not just a couple, but he says there were 500 eyewitnesses who were still alive at that time that saw the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, that which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, verse 6, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then they appeared to James and to the apostles, and last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. 23 years after the uh, uh, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's 500 people, or close, close to 500 people. Most of that 500 people are still around, still alive. Some have gone to sleep, but most of them are still here. It's pretty hard to try to attribute the resurrection of Jesus Christ to some kind of legendary theory when you're dealing with such a short amount of time and such a great amount of witnesses. Many eyewitnesses still alive. So again, this testimony, this uh, uh, view, this theory doesn't hold up the facts of history. Nor do the arguments, and you might have read this someplace, that the arguments of Christianity hatch the quote-unquote Easter myth over a lengthy period of time, stealing many of the themes from ancient Greco-Oriental mystery religions. It's not true. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now. And then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and then to me, says the apostle Paul. Historical truth. Number four, spiritual resurrection only. Now, some people believe that Jesus' body rotted in a tomb or some kind of grave, and his resurrection was uh, spiritual not physical. There's an ancient heresy. It's called docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Seems like is what it means. It seemed like. It seemed like he had a body. It seemed like. Now, it's an ancient heresy. And again, the, this, this theory goes against the facts. Now, in, in our text that I just read, uh, when it said that Mary met the resurrected Jesus, you can look up there in verse uh, 17, he told her, stop what? Stop clinging to me. Matthew says in his uh, 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 version that uh, when other women saw him, they took hold of his feet in worship. It's kind of hard to cling to or to grab hold of a spirit, right? Somebody who's not really there, just, we just thought he was there. And again, Jesus himself demolished the spiritual resurrection theory, if you will. When the disciples first saw Christ after the resurrection, they obviously were stunned, right? They're not expecting to see somebody rise from the dead. They were stunned, and they thought they were seeing a spirit. Uh, Luke 24, verse 39, he said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, that, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still could not believe it for joy, they were marveling. Said to them, have you, and he said to them, you have anything to eat? And then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took also and ate before them. So again, Jesus rose in the same body that he was crucified, 
Not a spirit. He wasn't crucified as a spirit. He was a real, tangible, physical human being. He died in a real, tangible, physical body, defeated death, and, and came out of that tomb with those marks that identified him as a, a real person. Right? So again, not only did he rise from the grave physically, uh, which uh, uh, um, uh, historical reality uh, attests uh, to... Um, lost my point here. Uh, it, it wasn't just some kind of mental apparition uh, uh, appearance, um, but it was a real physical body. And, and, and the, the guards believed that it was a real physical body because they're not going to guard some kind of uh, an empty tomb. They're not going to guard some kind of uh, 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 spirit that is not there. And the Jewish priests uh, they believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead in a real physical body because they're looking for the body, right? They're afraid that the, uh, uh, the, the disciples are going to come and steal the body. And again, I'll say more about that just in a moment, right? So uh, even the enemies of Jesus Christ believe in a literal physical death, a literal physical resurrection, or at least that uh, a body was in, involved in it, not some kind of a, a spirit only. Uh, number five, uh, the hallucination theory. Now, some people come along, along and say, well, you know, Jesus' followers only thought they... Uh, saw him. They wanted to see him so bad. They missed him so much, so much in love with him. Uh, they just imagined this. So all the post-resurrection appearances uh, of Christ are all dismissed uh, because everybody who saw him was only hallucinating. So again, to believe in that theory, you've got to believe that not only did Christ's closest followers experience a hallucination, those who are not looking for him, those who are not expecting a resurrection, somehow, some way, they acquire some strong, intense desire to see Jesus all of a sudden. Although, again, they weren't expecting him to rise from the dead because when the women go to the tomb, they're not going to anoint a, they're going to anoint a dead body, not going to see the resurrection, right? Somehow they experience a hallucination. Somehow, uh, at the same time, 500 other people at the same time all had the same hallucination, thinking Jesus was there when in actuality he was not there. They, they're just imagining the whole thing. Now, hallucination is a false sensory perception of the in the absence of an actual external stimulus or an apparent perception of an internal, uh, in, uh, external object that has no, uh, that no such object is present. Uh, so, uh, so again, this whole kind of uh, thing is, is, is ridiculous. It's a big stretch. Hallucinations are at best uh, personal issues, uh, private events, but try to extrapolate this and say, well, no, 500 people all at the same time had the same hallucination is, is, is again, a stretch. It's hard to believe 500 people at the same time experienced the same false sensory perception of Jesus uh, and viewing him when he really wasn't present. It's also, I don't know, just by way of casual observation, it's also hard, hard to believe that a hallucination can sit down and eat dinner with you. You got anything to eat, right? Some fish. And again, the reality is the truth of hallucination theory doesn't hold any kind of water either. So again, to claim all these people had such a mass hallucination over a period of time is just uh, impossible. In fact, for the sake of argument, the hallucination theory, if it actually happened, I would suggest that maybe that would be a greater miracle than to believe in the resurrection itself, right? The whole, the whole, whole idea is ludicrous. There are at least 10 different post-resurrection appearances of the person of Christ. From early in the morning, followed by a couple appearances in broad daylight to different people, different times of day, different locations. To experience a, a hallucination, people have to have a hopeful expectation or expectancy, uh, which causes them to desire the reality. Again, a guy's out in the middle of the desert. He's uh, uh, dying of thirst. He imagines that he sees, he hallucinates that he sees some water out there in the distance, right? He, he's, he wants that pool of water. He imagines it's there, but it's not there. Again, nobody expected Jesus to defeat death. That's why the women come to the tomb with what? Spices, right? They're coming to anoint a corpse. And again, when Jesus first shows up uh, to his disciples, they were frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. Uh, again, so all of these theories, the unknown tomb theory, the wrong tomb theory, the legend theory, spiritual resurrection theory, hallucination theory, none of these things have one iota of truth in them. They're all completely unbelievable. It's more easy, I don't think that's good English, but it's easier, how about that? It's easier to believe, easier to accept the resurrection than it is to accept any of those false uh, theories and attempts to try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and only a fool or the devil himself will try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because without the physical, literal, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are all still in our sins. We're all still under condemnation, right? Well, that, how, what was that, number five? Well, I'll give you some more, because there are more. How about the telepathy theory? I'll give me a little bit faster here. Uh, the telepathy theory, that's number six, says there was no physical resurrection, but that God somehow sent mental images to the minds of the followers of Christ to think that he actually defeated death. 
Number seven, the seance theory. This is a great one. The seance theory says that some medium conjured up the spirit of Jesus through occultic powers. Listen to that, through occultic powers. It wasn't really literally Jesus Christ, but some occultic-powered medium conjured him up, really. Right? So we need to have occultic powers involved to prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he proves that he's the Son of God by defeating death. Probably not going with that theory either. How about the mistaken identity theory, number eight? Theory, that theory says that somebody impersonated uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody tried to dress up like Jesus, to look like Jesus out of the crucifixion in order to, falsely, uh, to falsify the resurrection. Now, obviously, a pretty big point of problematic issue with this problem, this theory is that that person would have to, if they want to impersonate Christ, that person would have, would have had to have been what? Crucified. They would have had to have been crucified to have the nail prints in their hands and their feet and the spear hole in, in their side, right? In order to uh, uh, produce a forgery. Seems like a pretty high price to pay to promote a line. And another main problem with that theory is that you'd have to imagine the disciples knew too well who Jesus was to be fooled by an imposter. And another little minor point with this mistaken identity theory is how could an imposter carry out post-resurrection miracles that Jesus performed? How can an imposter walk through walls, right? Through the walls out of the, out of the sepulcher, through the walls and the places where the disciples were meeting. Doors closed, Jesus appears. How could an imposter control the fish in the sea? No fish on that side of the boat, throw your net over here, and you're going to get all you need. How about create a meal? How, how, appear, how about appear and then and vanish at will? How about a big one? How about how could an imposter ascend to heaven in full view of the disciples? An imposter cannot do that. Uh, again, this theory is also absurd, absurd, absolutely absurd. Number nine, the deluded woman theory. Uh, a 19th century scholar named Renan uh, said that, uh, uh, that he tried to say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is false because it's based primarily on the testimony of Mary Magdalene, who is a um, troubled woman. She'd been possessed by seven uh, demons. Therefore, in essence, uh, she was delirious. She was frightened, uh, insane. She's not a credible witness, uh, although uh, she only thought that she saw the resurrected Christ. Now, obviously, that theory also forgets the 10-plus separate post appearances, post-resurrection appearances recorded uh, concerning the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and it also completely ignores the other 500 witnesses who said they also saw the resurrected Christ. So the, the deluded woman theory doesn't hold. How about the resuscitation theory, number 10? Now, sometimes you know it's referred to as the swoon, S-W-O-O-N, the swoon theory. The swoon theory, the resuscitation theory goes something like this. Jesus never really died on a cross. It's true that he was nailed to the cross. It's true that he suffered a shock and pain and a tremendous amount of blood loss. But instead of dying, uh, he merely fainted or he swooned uh, from exhaustion. Uh, the disciples mistakenly thought they were, uh, that he was dead and they buried, but he was really alive. I mean, that's reasonable to believe, right? I mean, the uh, medical evidence or medical uh, uh, knowledge was not as great at that time as it is now, and these guys are not the sharpest pencils in a drawer, so maybe they were easily uh, fooled, misled. Uh, Jesus is placed into the cold sepulcher uh, in, in that uh, tomb, and the aroma of the spices revive him, and somehow he re revives from this near-death experience, comes out of the grave, and the disciples only assumed uh, that, they had been re that he'd been resurrected. Again, these guys aren't the most intelligent guys uh, to, to begin with, so they're easily deceived. Now, obviously, that theory also goes against the direct testimony of eyewitnesses, their historical testimony. Uh, again, the Roman soldiers, professional executioners, uh, they were experts at, at death. They tested the fact that Jesus was dead because when they went to break the legs of the two other men on either side of him, uh, they did not uh, break his legs because they saw Jesus was already dead. They jam a spear into his side. Again, that's another confirmation. Blood and water come out uh, that, that, that he's dead, right? Uh, he's not alive. Professional executioners validate that. Pilate, he's not giving up the body of Jesus Christ unless he's convinced uh, that he's dead, and he's convinced that he's dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus both attest to the fact that he was dead by taking his dead body down from the cross, uh, wrapping it very carefully in the cloth and, and the spices, and then burying him, sealing him in a tomb, and leaving, right? Uh, they're convinced he's dead. So to believe that Jesus only faked his death or swooned his death is to be, believe that Jesus, who had been beaten beyond description by scourging uh, the Roman soldiers, and then was so weak that he couldn't even carry his own cross to the, to the place of the execution, 
the one who had spikes driven through his hands and feet, uh, the, uh, the one who was crucified, the one who had a Roman spear thrust into his side. Again, eyewitnesses saying blood and water came out, again, which is a sign of death, that somehow he was able to recover in the tomb, unwrap himself from the 70 to 100 pounds of uh, spicy, gummy substance that he was wrapped in and cased in his body, that he was able to free, free himself from all those wrappings and then roll away the stone uh, from the inside, which weighed perhaps seven to eight tons. Now you go, well, I think I remember you last week saying it was uh, uh, one and a half to two tons. And that's what I said last week. But somewhere along the way this week, I found some notes. And I actually remembered when I taught this a long, long time ago, uh, there was a guy who was an engineer. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what? Because this is what he did for a living. Uh, he was a construction engineer. And he said, by my calculations, just doing da-da-da-da, I think that stone could actually weigh somewhere between seven and eight tons. I said, oh, well, I mean, one and a half to two ton, but I'll remember to write that down because I'll use it somewhere in the future. That's a good story, right? It's a big stone. He, so here's this weak, emaciated, beat-up guy who's going to come out and roll away this stone, right? And, and again, this one who's suffered, suffered so much, this one who's wounded, wounded is beaten man who's uh, suffered a tremendous amount of blood loss. He's in shock. He's surviving three days in the cold tomb without any food or water. And, and uh, again, all of a sudden, he has the power, the strength to wake up without any medical assistance, uh, unwrap himself, move this large stone, and then fight off these 16 Roman guards uh, to escape the tomb. Then, after that, he's going to walk seven miles on feet that have been uh, pierced by nails just to fake his resurrection. Well, there you go. That's the swoon theory. It, it completely ignores the, the obvious. It completely ignores the evidence. And again, it was, a, it was a theory that was very popular in the 18th century and somewhat popular today on certain university campuses. And it's a very popular theory amongst Muslim groups that Jesus didn't die. He just faked his death. He just swooned his death. So let's just play the game for a moment. Let's just assume that Jesus did indeed swoon his death. We're not sure how he got out of the tomb. We're not sure how he rolled away the stone or overcame the guards. But in spite of all that and all the physical wounds he has. So again, you've got this half-beaten, half-dead, I don't mean any irreverence, but kind of creeping, limping man who's in desperate need of medical treatment. He's going to need to be bandaged. He's going to need some time to recuperate, rest. But he wants his followers to believe that he is the sovereign. He is the prince of life, the all-powerful one, victor over death. So how in the world is this beaten, limping, ill, desperately in need of medical attention person going to be able to pass that off, that he is the all-powerful one? Again, if he really swooned his death, he only faked it, it was only resuscitated in the tomb. Don't you think in that weakened condition that would have caused his disciples to say, man, we're really glad he's back, but we were mistaken. He, he, he's just a man. He's just human. He's not God coming to flesh. Again, it's good to have him back. Uh, the response certainly isn't going to be about before him and worship him. So again, to believe the swoon theory is more miraculous than to believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Number 11, Passover plot. Very popular in the 1960s. If you're uh, in my age group, you probably remember this very well. It was written by a, a book by the same title by a man named Schoenfeld. Uh, he, he said that Jesus conspired with Joseph of Arimathea and Lazarus and another young man to convince the disciples he was the Messiah. He was knowledgeable of many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. So he ordered his life in such a manner that he could fill the predictions and manipulate the minds of people. So Jesus decided to arrange or to feign his death, fake his death uh, by being crucified. And then he was administered a drug. All this was planned out, administered a drug uh, when he was given wine and vinegar to drink and, and when he was upon a cross. So the plan was for Joseph to take uh, the body, place it in a tomb. And when uh, the effects of the drug wore off, he would help rescue him. Uh, and, and at some point uh, in the future, he would present himself alive and passing himself, pass off the lie that he was the Messiah. But the whole plan was unfortunately undone. And when unexpectedly the Roman guard shoves a, a spear into his side and Jesus regains conscience only for a little bit and then he finally dies. Joseph had to act quickly, take the body, dispose of it uh, in, the, into the, in, the, in the dump there at the end of town so that the grave would be empty. And then supposedly, tying one of these other theories, this is where the imposter comes in. The imposter fakes, walks around, fakes like he's Jesus. And, and again, the disciples are so dumb they can't figure it out. So to these so-called fake appearances... Uh, that motivated the followers of Jesus Christ the rest of their lives to go out and change the world with the message that Jesus had actually defeated death when he had not. So again, the whole Passover plot is another 
distortion of truth, another manipulation of the facts. The whole thing is utterly ridiculous. Someone once said this. I don't know who it is. I wish I put it in my notes, but I didn't. Uh, someone once said this. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So the truth is, no matter how improbable it might seem to some, Jesus Christ defeated death. That's the reality of history. The, tr- the tomb is empty. I told you this last week. No one has ever denied that fact. The tomb is empty. And in the providence of God and God's sovereignty, he's going to secure the testimony of Jesus' resurrection and the fact of the empty tomb, not from Jesus' friends, but he's going to first do that from Jesus' enemies. The disciples aren't going to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. It's going to be the Roman guards, followed by the Jewish religious leaders who are the first to receive the news that Jesus has defeated death and the tomb is empty. Again, in God's sovereignty, in somewhat of an act of irony, it's going to be the enemies of Christ, with all the precautions that they have taken to secure the tomb, who are going to be the ones to proclaim the fact that the body of Jesus is gone, he's not in the tomb. So there's a 12th theory that attempts to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and really, uh, it's the lie that proves the resurrection. It's the lie that proves the resurrection. It's the oldest theory of all the theories. Invented by the Jewish religious leaders, and it's found in Matthew 28. So put a mark in your Bible, because we are going to come back here. Put a spot in your Bible there so you can get back to it easy. And turn to Matthew 28. And in this Matthew 28 passage, the religious leaders are practicing deception. And God, from his perspective in the passage, is vindicating his son. He's proving the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, the only one who ever defeated death. Again, it's a lot easier to believe the truth than it is to deny the truth. It takes a whole lot more effort to come up with some sort of explanation for the empty tomb rather than just to accept the reality of the historical narrative and, and the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, we need to be in verse 11. That's the, where we need to be, but just for the context, let me just read at the top of the chapter. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first, of the, day, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, his garments as white as snow, and the guard shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who had been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. And behold, he's going quickly, uh, going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy ran to report uh, it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and came, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go take a word to my brethren and leave Galilee, for there they shall see me. Verse 11, Now while they, they would be the women, while the women were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. So Matthew says some of the guard. Not all of them, but some of them have wakened from their coma, if you will. And they're going to go report to the authorities what had happened. Uh, they, they don't know what happened. Uh, we don't know what happened to the rest. We don't know if they stayed at the empty tomb or whether they scattered in all directions, which I would have done. Because, again, as I told you last time, if you're an on-duty Roman soldier and you failed to guard what you've been charged, uh, given charge to guard over, then it could cost you your very life. So again, remember, they saw the angel was struck with terror. They fall down like dead men. And some of them have brought a report to the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. Now, although the guard is Roman, they bring this information to the Jewish religious authorities because Pilate had placed these men in temporary authority uh, under the supervision uh, of uh, these uh, religious leaders to to supervise, uh, again, and care for the, the, the tomb where Christ was buried. So these men come up and tell the religious authorities what had happened, what they've seen, what they've experienced, the sudden descent, terrifying descent of the angel, come down, the glowing, burning angel, the earthquake, the removal of the stone, the breaking of the seal, etc., and so forth, and the fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that happened, verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders in the, in the in council together. 
the, when the elders all came together, this is a convening of the Sanhedrin. This is a, an official meeting uh, of the ruling body of the elders of, of Israel. Once they're given the information what occurred uh, uh, with the grave of Christ, now they're going to make a decision on what to do with that information. What do you do with the truth that you've just been told by these men who are most reliable witnesses of the Roman soldiers? Uh, again, their testimony is reliable. They're honest uh, soldiers. They report all that happened. Uh, they don't hold anything back. Again, they're frightened to death. They've, uh, they've uh, seen this angel descend. They've got too, too uh, much fear in them to, to uh, give anything less than an honest report. And the high priests have no excuse. Uh, um, uh, therefore, they can't say they've been misinformed. Uh, they have the truth uh, laid in front of them. Now, notice what the text doesn't say any place. It, it doesn't say that the Sanhedrin rejected the report of the uh, soldiers. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they utterly rejected in utter disbelief the, 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 the report of the soldiers. I, I think that's an important point. Now, the report of the soldiers obviously is somewhat astounding, the facts of the, that are presented to the high priest, but none of them ever in the text question the facts. And notice also that they don't ever cross-examine the guards. There's no questions like, what did you see? Uh, tell me a little more detail. What, what did you really see? Did you really see an angel? Uh, do you really want us to believe that kind of a story? Do you want us to believe that the, the huge stone covering the entrance of the tomb was actually rolled back? I mean, who could have done such a thing? Did you actually see Jesus? I mean, were the disciples around? What do you, what do you think to happen to the body? No questions. None. No, no cross-examination, no cross-examination, no rejection of the soldiers' stories. Nothing will be done except to nullify the facts. Now, at the same time, there's no indication in the story here anywhere that the Sanhedrin believed the story. I mean, they're the first ones to hear the secondhand testimony about the resurrection, even bore the disciples, but they don't believe it. And when confronted with the truth, they still will reject it. They're going to refuse to believe, even though a couple days previous, you might remember, mockingly they said to Jesus when he was on the cross, if you come down from the cross, we will believe on you, right? Matthew 27, verse 42. But they don't. They won't, right? Not only has Jesus come down from the cross, he's risen from the grave, and they still don't believe. And listen, they still won't believe. They won't believe. They won't investigate the soldier's story. They just remain in their blindness blinded by their own sin, blinded by Satan himself, trapped in their own religious system, they refuse to investigate the reality of the revelation given to them by the Roman guards. Someone has rightly said this. We find that what a man believes is influenced in large measure by emotional bias and prejudgment, and last by objective and critical assessment of the evidence. I'm going to say that again. We find that what a man believes is influenced in large measure by emotional bias and prejudgment, and last by objective and critical assessment of the evidence. And that's completely true when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. That's completely true when it comes to the historical person of Jesus Christ. Completely true when it comes to the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. Most people refuse to believe. And not only do most people refuse to believe, most people refuse to do what? To even examine the evidence, right? They refuse to examine the evidence. They refuse to examine the historical account of the resurrection. They refuse to examine the life and the person of Jesus Christ, everything he did, again, exercising his power over nature, exercising power over the supernatural realm, uh, healing on, on the physical realm. Again, how many times have I told you, not one time ever did any of Jesus's most ardent enemies ever deny the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. Nobody ever denied that. What the religious leaders said is that his power came from Beelzebub or from the prince of darkness. Nobody rejected the supernatural element of the life of the person of Christ. And now, in spite of all that uh, the religious leaders have done to make sure that there's no resurrection of Jesus Christ, their worst fears are going to be realized. And again, it's really the enemies, the enemies of Christ taking such high security measure, they're only going to add, by them doing that, they're only going to add to the validity of the resurrection. Listen, if they just left the tomb alone and gone, gone away, it would have been a lot easier to say that the disciples came and stole the body, right? But they haven't done that. And God sent a, a message of Jesus' resurrection again to the high priest through their own witnesses, the guys that these high priests hired, the soldiers, to guard the tomb, the, the high priests have posted there. 
But again, the high priest still refused to yield to the truth. They still refused to submit their hearts to the truth. The promise of Jesus Christ is he said he would rise from the dead three days later. And now they've been told the fact that Jesus is not there. He's risen. And the angel from heaven has revealed the fact of the empty tomb. Proclamation opened the tomb, let the world in, but they still don't believe. They're going to still nullify the truthfulness of the witness's testimony. And again, all of that is, is willful resistance against the truth. Right? It's the heart of unbelief. I told you that over and over again. The heart of unbelief is rebellion against the truth. The heart of unbelief is suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. It's to reject the truth. And when we reject the truth, listen to me, when you reject the truth, all that remains is what? A lie. That's all that's left. You reject the truth, all that remains is a lie. And I've told you a hundred times, unbelief is not ever by lack of evidence. Uh, unbelief is the product of a hard heart. A hard heart that refuses to see the truth. Now the religious leaders have been told the truth. They're not going to receive it. Uh, and, and one thing, the one, one thing they want to make sure is nobody else is going to receive it. They don't, want any, they don't want the people to receive it. Obviously, that, if the people started to believe that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead, that's going to cause these uh, leaders, these religious leaders, a little bit of trouble because they're the ones who are chiefly responsible for his murder. And, and now these guards have come and reported the tomb's empty and Jesus risen from the dead. Verse 12 again, when they'd assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, right? The, uh, the priests can't deny the truth of what the soldiers reported, therefore they're going to deal with this, or the way they, they're going to deal with it is with a bribe. They're going to give a bribe to the, to the guards. They're going to attempt to get rid of the facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus with some money and with a lie. Now, they gave a large sum of money. That word money is really silver. So they're going to give much silver to these soldiers. Again, it cost the Jewish religious leaders 30 pieces of silver to buy off Judas Iscariot. But they're going to have to pay a whole lot more here because they got more men. Again, somewhere between 4 to 16 men. They're going to pay more money, but they don't care. They've got to make sure that the guards perpetuate a lie about the person of Jesus Christ raising from the dead uh, regarding his resurrection. Again, they couldn't allow people, they couldn't afford to have people believe that Jesus had really risen from the dead because that's going to destroy their little religious empire. So they're going to have to pay a whole lot of money to the Roman guards to make sure that if uh, this comes out and Pilate ever finds out any knowledge of this, that they'd fallen asleep while they were in guard, then it could cost them their very lives. So when they'd assembled together, the elders and council, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And here's the lie, verse 13. You are to say, here's the lie, you are to say his disciples came by night, stole away, stole him away while we were asleep. So again, the fact is the tomb's empty. Although it had been guarded by the Roman soldiers, the only way to explain away the empty tomb without admitting the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to promote a lie. And that's the way it's always been for those who are trying to get rid of the resurrection. Only a falsehood, only a lie can attempt to do so. Now, just like all the other evidences or all the other theories that uh, I put forward that uh, attempt to reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this too has some very serious problems. For, for instance... Number one, is it, all, is it all likely that Jesus' disciples who'd abandoned him when he was arrested would come now back and risk their lives in order to steal his dead body? They abandoned him at the resurrection. Is it possible that they would now come back and try to steal his dead body? Uh, to take that body away would be a capital offense. Uh, the tomb is under the guard of the Roman authority. Uh, again, it seems unlikely that the disciples would come back to steal the body, to promote a lie when they themselves don't believe in the resurrection and they weren't expecting it. Number two, and could the disciples really have accomplished that task without waking up the Roman soldiers? So for the moment, let's just assume that they were asleep. For the moment, let's just assume the disciples did come back, steal the body. Somehow the disciples have come to the tomb. Sometime, how have they, somehow they've rolled that heavy uh, stone, maybe the weight weighs up to seven or eight tons, uphill uh, in the groove in which it was sitting, and then they removed the body. And neatly placed the grave cloths back in the place where the corpse was laying. They don't make any noise. They don't disturb the guard. Now, either, if that's true, either these men are pretty stealth, right? I mean, they're, they're extremely stealth uh, in stealing the body of Christ, or uh, the Roman guards were extremely uh, deep sleepers, right, to, to not notice. Right? The, the most sound sleepers in the history of the world. Number three, how likely is it that each and every one of the guards had fallen asleep at the same time? You know, and they said, we all fell asleep. 
Well, each and every guard knew that there was a penalty of death if you failed to guard and what you were in charge to guard, and they, they knew that if they fell asleep, uh, again, the penalty was death. So it was high, high motivation to stay awake. So how likely is that each and every one of the guards has fallen asleep at the same time? For the sake of argument, let's just say the disciples did come back and steal the body of Christ, and the guards were asleep, and if that's exactly what happened, then why, listen, why didn't the Jewish religious leaders prosecute Jesus' disciples? Why didn't the Jewish religious leaders prosecute Jesus' disciples? Here you go. Why didn't Rome prosecute Jesus' disciples? I mean, again, the body was sealed in the tomb with a Roman seal. Uh, these men would have been guilty of a capital crime. Why were they not prosecuted? Number five, which is probably the most obvious on the list. If the guards were asleep, that's the lie, right? Tell them you were asleep and the, body, the, the disciples came and stole the body. If they were asleep... How in the world would the guards know who came and stole the body of Jesus at night when they were sleeping? Sleeping people don't tend to be the most reliable eyewitnesses. Right? It's just nothing but ridiculousness when you start unpeeling what, what people say. Remember, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And the truth is, no matter how improbable it might seem to some, Jesus Christ defeated death. The fact of the empty tomb is historical reality. If Jesus Christ died and was buried, then the question of the ages is, where's the body? Why hasn't anyone said, no, I saw him in the tomb? Why hasn't anyone come and said, look, here's, here's his corpse. He, here's the bones. Here's some evidence that the tomb was not empty. All the Jewish religious leaders had to do to stop the resurrection story is what? Produce the body. That's all they have to do is produce the body. Now, if the disciples knew where the body of Jesus was, what would be their motivation to preach the resurrection? Money? No, there was none at this time, right? You're not getting any money for doing this. Reputation? No, that's not, a, that's not valid, right? They're not going to make a name for themselves by preaching the resurrection because in, in the preaching and the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, what it cost the disciples was everything. It cost them their own reputation. It cost them being thrown out of their own religion of Judaism. It cost them to be, thro cost them to be thrown out of the synagogue, thrown out of their own culture. It cost them their family ties, their jobs, their businesses. It cost them everything, and it's going to cost them their lives. Someone has said for the first three centuries after the resurrection, the only thing that anybody gained by preaching the resurrection was instant danger, right? Insult, danger, torture, and death. That's all that anybody ever gained by preaching the resurrection. And again, you look at the disciples, uh, at the rest of Jesus, they're cowards. They all forsake him and flee. But again, in just a very short amount of time, it's only seven weeks, 50 days, Pentecost, all of a sudden they're filled with courage. Turn over to the book of Acts. Acts 2, and i got to hurry up a bit here. So Acts chapter 2. Verse 22. This is Peter, the guy who forsook Jesus, right? Denied him three times. Acts 22, 50 days later. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man tested you by God with miracles and wonders, signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, and God raised him up again, putting the end of the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Where'd that courage come from? How is it all of a sudden this man steps up and starts preaching with boldness Jesus and the resurrection. It's historical truth. I would suggest to you that the reason that he stands up and presents Jesus as raised from the dead is what? Jesus raised from the dead. Historical reality. Something happened. Historical reality. Jesus defeated death literally and physically. Go to Acts chapter 4. Verse 1, as they, which is Peter and John, as they were speaking... To the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching uh, the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. It was already evening, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. 
came about on the next day that the rulers and the entire scribes, elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were high priestly descent. When they placed them in the center, they began to incur by what power or name have you done this? They healed a, a man who was uh, lame. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers, elders of the people, if we are on trial there, if we are on trial today for the benefit of done to the sick man, how is it that he has been made well? Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel, but the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, speaking of Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but became the very cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus, right? Wouldn't we all want to be recognized by the world around us as having been spent some time with Jesus, right? Confidence, because they know the truth, believe the truth. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing uh, with them, they had nothing to say in reply, but when they, they'd ordered them to go outside of the council and began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact of a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more uh, to any man in his name. When, when they'd summoned them, they commanded them not to speak to e, uh, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, or, or rather than to uh, God, uh, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And they threatened them further, and they let them go, finding no basis of which they might punish them. On account of the people, many were glorifying God because of what had happened. So to say that Jesus only rose spiritually from the dead in the hearts and minds of his followers is ludicrous. To say there was only a spiritual resurrection, say Jesus remained in the tomb, uh, again, that's completely against uh, the reality of history, the story of history. Back in Matthew 28, verse 13 says, You're to say to his disciples came by night, stole him away when we were asleep. And if you should come to the governor's ear, we'll win him over, keep you from trouble. So again, the Sanhedrin says to the Roman soldiers, you just keep perpetuating this lie. If he ever gets back to Pilate, then we won't let Pilate uh, court-martial you. We won't let Pilate execute you. You'll be safe. Why weren't they interested in the truth? Because the truth is they're only interested in promoting a lie. Right? Back in uh, Matthew 28, it says in verse 15, they took the money, the Roman soldiers took the money, did as they had been instructed, and the story is widely spread uh, among the Jews to this day. This day in the context would probably have been somewhere about 63 AD. So 30 years down the road when, Paul, when uh, Matthew writes the, the gospel account, this is the lie that is circulating in the culture amongst the Jewish people. The disciples came and stole the body of Christ. But again, as we've seen, it's utterly impossible. Therefore, it's this lie promoted, the earliest lie that's promoted by the Jewish religious authorities that actually proves the resurrection of Jesus Christ historically from the dead. Their lie is convincing proof of the reality of the resurrection. But it has accomplished exactly the very opposite of what they hope to accomplish. Right? And the evidence that they've given is not given by the friends of Jesus. It's given by his enemies. Because God's so powerful that he makes even his enemies praise him. And one thing that's kind of interesting there at the end of the book of uh, uh, Matthew. And Matthew, I think, does this very intentionally. He ends the story of Matthew by saying, look... Here's the character of the Jewish religious leaders. They are going to commission their followers to take a lie. Go and proclaim a lie. What's it, what happens in the end of the 28th chapter of the book of Matthew? Jesus gives the great commission. His great commission is go and do what? Proclaim the truth. Here's the hope of the nations, right? You go to the nations with the truth. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. So the lie promoted by the Jewish religious leaders compared to the proclamation of the truth by the disciples of Jesus Christ. Go take the good news that Jesus Christ has defeated death. Hope for the nations. Listen, we don't have to prove 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical reality. Christian apologetics, Christian proofs are for you who are believers to be encouraged even deeper in your faith that everything the Bible says is absolutely true. This is exactly what happened. There is an offer, really a command, for the unbeliever to examine the evidence to repent because apart from Jesus Christ, you'll perish. God sent Christ into the world out of his love that men would have life and not perish. But those who reject the person of Jesus Christ are judged what? Already. So if you're somebody who's watching on a live stream or somebody here in the room and you don't know the person of Jesus Christ, you say, I'm going to wait for this for another day, that is a foolish place to find yourself. Because you have been judged already. And if you hear more than one time the offer of of, of the gospel of grace, that's an incredibly gracious God. He doesn't have to offer the gospel to anyone. The fact is that we're all rebellious sinners and God desires that men would be saved. Come to a knowledge of the truth. Believe the truth and repent. We don't prove anything. Historical person of Jesus Christ, the historical resurrection is fact of history. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and the evil one wants men not to believe the truth, but to reject the truth, and when you reject the truth, all that remains is a what? Lie. Life is that simple. It's like the psalm I read, two ways of life, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Our Father and God, we're thankful for this opportunity to look into your word and thankful for the historical reality of the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. We marvel at that great truth, and we're so thankful for your kindness to us through uh, the Savior. And we're so thankful for an opportunity to come now and take of the Lord's table that points us to the person of Jesus Christ. And help us uh, to think deeply on that reality. Jesus Christ, a literal person of history who you send, who comes out of your great love, his great love, to bear the consequences of our rebellion against you, which is death. And Jesus Christ pays that penalty. He is the only hope of the nations. He is the only hope of life eternal after these physical bodies take their last breath and step into eternity. Help those who do not know you to repent and help us who do know you and love you to love you with even a greater, in a greater fashion. We just marvel at your grace. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.